Hey everyone, I'm Chris Hall and you're listening to the Downside Podcast, where we delve deep into the gravity-based side of mountain biking. This week's episode is supported by Nukeproof and Earshots, and we've got a discount code for you, so make sure to keep listening and find out more. Nukeproof have recently launched their first ever e-bike, the Megawatt, and it's available in Nukeproof dealers worldwide now. Based on a Mega V4, but engineered from the ground up around Shimano's latest EP8 motor, Nukeproof have gone all in to make sure they get it right from the start. By using test riders like Sam Hill, Nigel Page, Adam Brayton and Elliot Heap, Nukeproof are able to ensure that the bike delivers. Based on Sebstock's review of the Megawatt where he said they've knocked it out of the park, it sounds like they've got it bang on. We're talking a mullet chassis to optimise packaging and ride dynamics with 170mm front and rear travel. They've taken full advantage of having a motor on board to allow them to tune the anti-squat characteristics so that the Megawatt descends like a downhill bike but will still get you back to the top with ease. The kinematic is designed to be supple off the top but with tons of mid-stroke support to help with cornering and pumping and then ramping up towards the end of the stroke too. And you can even fit a water bottle on it, so what's not to like? There's three spec levels to choose from, so head over to nukeproof.com and check them out. I've had a number of different pairs of sports headphones over the years, and I've tried to use them for riding and training, but I've always been disappointed. They've generally been uncomfortable, or they've fallen out, and they've really not been up to the demands of riding. James Bell Booth from Earshots was having a similar problem, and he decided he was going to go and solve it. Earshots are focused on creating headphones for action sports. Their Bluetooth headphones use an innovative proprietary magnetic ear clip design and this unique design can withstand the sharp shock, speed and functional movements of action sports. I've been using Earshots since the start of the year and I've been really impressed. The key thing is they stay put. I've tried them in the gym and on the bike with various different helmets and over all sorts of terrain and they've always stayed in. I was concerned that the magnetic clip would be uncomfortable, but they've got the strength of the clip just right. It stays put, but you can't feel it pinching your ear at all. Battery life is great and they charge from their own case. So as long as you put them away, they're always ready to go. Lastly, they've thought about the packaging too. It's super simple, recyclable cardboard, and unlike pretty much every other set of headphones I've ever received. So if you want to get the tunes going for motivation while you're training, or you want to listen to a podcast while you ride, Earshots have got you covered. You can find out more over at earshots.com. And as a downtime listener, you can get 10% off during July by using the code downtime or in uppercase at the checkout. All the links you need are in the show notes for this episode over on downtimepodcast.com. Don't forget, I've got a brand new project launching really soon. It's called Downtime EP, and if you want to get involved and find out more, then you can sign up over at downtimepodcast.com forward slash EP. Thanks to everyone who's already signed up. You've already had a little uh, first taste of what we're up to, and we've had some awesome feedback, so thanks for everyone that's been in touch. Please make sure you're following the podcast on whatever platform you listen. There's probably a button there that says follow or subscribe, so hit that now. It's free, and it means you'll get every episode as soon as it drops. If you can't find the button, then you can head to downtimepodcast.com forward slash subscribe where there's links to all the major platforms there to help you. It'd also be great if you can give me a follow on Instagram and Facebook where I'm at Downtime Podcast. All right, this week I'm joined by mountain bike photographer, videographer and illustrator Sam Needham. Sam has worked his way from using a basic film camera to document the riding antics of him and his mates to having two Dirt magazine covers and now becoming a part of Steel City Media, where he produces incredible photo and video content for some of the biggest bike brands on the planet. We chat about the path that he's created for himself, the way that the media landscape has changed and some of the challenges that's created. Sam's also a huge part of Ilkley MTB and has been instrumental in keeping access to the more open to riders. So we chat about that too. All right, without further ado, here's Sam Needham. 
Sam Needham, welcome to the Downtime Podcast. How's things with you? Good, cheers. Yeah, how about you? Yeah, very good, thank you. We're in uh, we're in Ilkley. We're sat in your office studio. What would you call it? Uh, I don't know. I feel I say office actually, which I think that's because I consider a studio somewhere that should be, I don't know, covered in paint, messy, um, <laughs> creative in that sense. But it, it, it's a place these days to house a. Uh, a computer really <laughs> yeah big computer <laughs> yeah some nice speakers a lot of cameras yeah i guess it is a studio it's a studio stroke office yeah but it's not a messy studio no it does the trick it's yeah it feels nice and calm so yeah yeah, yeah. it's good it's a good working space i can see the moors and the trails i can yeah we've got a shower so it's a bonus you got a shower <laughs> so yeah, you can go yeah. ride in get muddy come in yeah get showered off and go to work yeah it's That's ideal good. actually yeah so all the facilities. <laughs> you have got life sorted. <laughs> nice one. Well, let's, yeah, let's wind the clock back to the early days and um, just tell us a little bit about how mountain biking came into your life because you, you grew up in Ilkley, right? Yeah, pr- well, as a, as a kid, up until about seven or eight, we moved around a lot mm-hmm. because my dad works in, ge- well, he's a geologist, so we, we moved a lot with his work. Um, but then, yeah, we came to here again because of dad moving around with work. And I've been here ever since, but it was, it was really here that I first found mountain biking. Oh, that sounds a bit lame, doesn't it? But, uh, kind of, um, really got into it, but it was by chance, really. I think as kids, family holidays, things like that, we would always go for family bike rides, but they were always chill, you know, kind of the classic family bike ride canal path kind of thing. Always good fun. And you'd, I'd always be looking for something to do off the side of it. Yeah. But then when we moved here and we got into, uh, it was actually really when we went to grammar school, two of the, two of my mates at the time, we just decided to get bikes Well, we had bikes, decided just to take them up onto the moor and go for a ride. It wasn't because we thought we wanted to go for a mountain bike ride or we'd seen anyone do that. It was just because it was something to do, I guess. Yeah. So, so yeah, that's kind of where it first started, I guess. What Um, sort of bike would you have been on back then? I had a Doors, it was, yeah, it was a Doors, you know, make a, I think they make like touring bikes and things. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it was, you know, your classic couple of hundred quid, 26 inch wheeled. Yeah. Suspension was questionable. I had it <laughs> front, front and rear or? No, just front. Okay. Yeah. With a little, uh, stanchion covers on it. Nice. Classic. Um, Elastomer yeah, based. Elastomer based. Yeah. It was red and cream. Pretty classy combo. Yeah, I can picture it. Yeah, so that was the first bike and um, hardtail. Yeah, and we just go up and, I mean, the other guys had similar kind of bikes. It wasn't like one. In fact, none of us had any sort of mountain bike background within our families or anything. It was just right. just going out and having a look at what the moors was, but on bikes, I guess. Yeah. So, yeah, no helmets. Pretty sketchy looking back on it. Because, you know, when we were on a family bike ride we'd being obviously have helmets on parents would make us wear helmets but for some reason when the parents weren't watching and we were doing our own thing on trails on the moors where there's more shit gonna happen yeah yeah helmets were off which, they were ditched yeah pretty stupid they quickly got back on you know once we got into it yeah it, they they came back into fashion for us so yeah so how did you get like how did it how did it come from a ride on the moors just happened to be on a mountain bike because that's what most kids had at, mm. at that time that was the cool thing i guess like how did it turn from that into you realizing that mountain biking was a thing? There was a scene. How did you start to kind of get into that? I think 
Because at the time, I mean, after we'd done a, maybe a few ventures out onto the moors, there was definitely, I mean, there was definitely a little scene here. Um, I mean, the bike shop in town, they had a really big, I think it was every Tuesday night, they'd always have a big ride out from the shop. So we'd see, you know, all the people at the time riding a lot. Also, my sort of core group of mates now here who I ride with week in, week out, they, they're a little bit older, um, they were older than us and they were already into it. So okay. I guess we just started seeing them riding and doing what they do, which was downhill at the time. Yeah. Um, so that probably was the first kind of catalyst for us to taking it a step further and thinking, oh, this is actually really good. And this is, look at those guys doing that there. That looks well fun. We want to get a better bike, a downhill bike. And that kind of sparked the interest, I guess. Yeah. Um, and then we just, I guess, got taken under their wing a little bit. So they were, my mates, and I mean, they're a couple of years older, so not, so not much older, mm-hmm. but um, they, you know, they had the bikes that we wanted. They were just flat out on the bikes and we just wanted to be like that really. So it was a good, good little scene. Yeah. Nice bit of inspiration. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And were you consuming like, was it MBUK magazine, mountain biking UK back then? Is that was that dropping through the door on a regular basis? Yeah, um, definitely MBUK to begin with. I remember, yeah, being in the line at lunch school and stuff and we'd be there just pouring over an MBUK. It was MBUK as well. I remember all the ads in there, you know, like uh, oh, Stiff always had the double page ad at the start yeah, and we'd yeah. just like pouring over those ads like, oh yeah, I'd have that, I'd have this, I'd have that. That'd be my <laughs> dream setup. Um, we weren't really reading the articles. We were just looking at the kit inside. Yeah, Most yeah. well have been in Argos catalog. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, no, I remember doing exactly the same yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, but that's what you, I don't know, that was, was part of the fun, I guess. So yeah. we'd just be specking what the bike we dreamt of having. Nice. And uh, yeah, for some reason I always wanted a set of D-Max wheels in yellow, <laughs> which is, uh, yeah. They were pretty popular at the top end of the racing back then, yeah, I guess. Yeah, like, yeah. And it was such a, it stood out as a component. Like you knew, if someone was on D-Max, you knew. Yeah, it's true actually. Bright yellow wheels yeah. flying down the hill. Expensive taste to get into mountain biking yeah. with. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I had a mate back in the day who, I don't know where he got the money from. Maybe it was had a bit of a sponsorship, but he had two sets of D-Max, one set up with mud wheel, mud tires on in case you needed to switch out. Fair That's play. living. Yeah, it? that is, that is dream living. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> so did you, did you start to get kind of into the racing side of things then? Did the guys that you were hanging out with and looking up to, were they racing and starting dragging you along some of that? We, at first, at first we just kind of got into the whole downhill genre, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, we just wanted to ride downhill. I don't really know that, we didn't really know exactly what downhill was thinking back, um, back to it. We just wanted to ride downhills as fast as possible, okay. as fast as the hour possible was. Yeah. Um, but none of us had been to a, a race or a race track really. We'd just ridden locally, uh, yeah. with the odd, we might've done the odd day here and there, but it was really just getting into it like that way and then seeing things in MBUK and then we started reading, you know, picking up dirt and seeing that that was all generally like gravity focused. And that really started inspiring us different. Well, the real core of the riding, I guess that we wanted to be doing. Um, so I'd say we did that for three years or so Uh and progressed from having, you know, our doors, hardtails (laughs) to getting our first downhill bike. Um, mine was actually, I got a Scott, 
bought saved up from bike shop and paper round and whatever and it was a scott high octane oh uh, yeah yeah um which was <laughs> hefty bit of kit pretty wild <laughs> yeah. bit of kit yeah um so yeah we all once we'd got downhill bikes and we'd kind of learned more about that side of mountain biking then we decided to get, go and give racing a shot not because I think actually going into it, we thought we'd do really well. But when we got there, that was <laughs> quite the opposite. An education. An education, yeah. Hopton Castle. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I remember the track. Well, the track was super boggy. I remember it being quite flat as well. But I just remember being super nervous. Like, I don't know. It just was a very different. It was a good fun weekend. You know, we just camped and got stuck in the field and yeah, all the rest standard. of it. Standard, yeah. But it was um, definitely eye-opening in terms of our skill level pitched against everyone else um but that's part of it isn't it it's part of the fun Definitely. and then you, that was really probably the first time that we saw a a true yeah well yeah definitely a race but also like actually what a downhill track okay could be as well yeah because I, yeah. I guess if you were mostly riding around here back then the trails were all just kind of natural yeah naturally occurring lines down the hill they weren't yeah. built features and that sort of stuff no not really i mean we had at the time we rode there were definitely other trails but mm. we pretty much stuck to two trails and now upon our local trails there's definitely more trails way more trails than there were yeah through all sorts of different reasons but at the time there were two trails and they were basically a straight line from <laughs> the top to the bottom um re- genuinely really not really any corners in it and it, yeah. it was a case of just ah oh, just going as literally as fast as you could and <laughs> That was the challenge. So, yeah, a bit kamikaze, but yeah, it's good fun. And a bit more gnarly than Hopton probably was back then as well, like rockier, rougher, faster. Yeah, I, well, yeah, I guess. I mean, I, the Hopton track that we rode, I just remember it being really boggy and rooty and a bit flat. Yeah. But um, I haven't been back since, actually, so I'm sure it's changed a, a lot now. But, um, yeah, I think... We just got to Hopton and realised that you can actually corner as well. So, <laughs> <laughs> was there ever like an aspiration, you know, that you wanted to follow that race career? You wanted to be a professional rider, sort of thing, or was that always just something you did for enjoyment and to be part of the scene? Definitely just for enjoyment. Yeah, I think as well because it was a big part of the scene at the time. I think when we were when we first got into riding, it was well, I, at least at least this is how I remember it and kind of what it was for us but you were either a cross-country rider or you were a downhill rider yeah all mountain was slowly becoming a thing i mean when i worked at the bike shop um i remember when we sold scott and i remember they brought out a bike that had that um trivative was it called it was like a strange shram jewel jewel chain ring thing at the front was uh, it, was it right Hus- okay Hosefella or something? Hosefella. I can't remember what the actual thing was called, mm. but it was kind of like an internal geared okay. crank thing. Right. But it was really small. Yeah. Anyway, um, that that came out yeah. on this Scott and it was like all mountain was suddenly becoming a thing. Okay. Um, and that's when, you know, people were taking four cross bikes and building them into trail bikes and stuff. But that was a little bit later. So at the start, it was definitely just you're either downhill or cross country you were, so we just wanted you were to cool or you wore lycra yeah i guess so. <laughs> pretty <laughs> much you tried to be cool that's how i remember it <laughs> yeah and um but it was just for enjoyment yeah rather than um wanting to necessarily do really well definitely one of our friends uh, he lives in canada now but he 
he was pretty competitive and did actually do pretty well at quite a lot of the races. But uh, it was never just to do a full season and progress to going out and doing, you know, different events in different parts of the world and stuff. Yeah. It was just for enjoyment. Yeah, fair play. And um, where does photography fit in alongside this? Like, how did you get into picking up a camera and, and that side of things? Because that's, that's kind of what's, I guess, shaped your career so far yeah um well the bikes obviously came first but i think through that because we were a good oh well we are a good bunch of mates still but we just yeah we just wanted to take pictures of what we're doing skidding in the woods messing around you know that's what all it was was messing around and um you didn't have we didn't have phones like they are now um so really the way of documenting these things was by taking pictures or using, you know, dad cams and yeah. getting pretty shoddy little films <laughs> put together. Um, but it, that, I mean, that was just a really enjoyable part because I think the nice thing with downhill, I guess, kind of analyzing it is, or that kind of riding is that you're always trying to do something. You're, you're trying to look cool or you're trying to go faster or the way that you ride just looks good, doesn't it? Yeah. So the subject that we wanted to be taking pictures of kind of honed, started to hone a bit of a skill, I guess. Okay. Um, but yeah, we just had two, it was my, myself and a, a guy called Ross, who's a good mate. We just had our dad's film cameras to, to mess around with. So we just, every time we were riding, they'd go out, out in the backpack and we'd just all, all just use the cameras and just shoot loads of pictures. And then we developed these film roles at the end of the year and just have a batch of photos to sort of all sift through and pick out to blue tack onto the wall, much to the parents' dismay. <laughs> so there was no intention to like get better at photography. It was purely a documentation and, and some cool stuff to have at the end of every year. Yeah, literally that. Just for, again, just for enjoyment because yeah. the subject was enjoyable to shoot as well. Yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, it wasn't like a, a career path thing or a... Um, any conscious effort to progress with it. It was just quite an honest, yeah, insight into what what we wanted to do really. Yeah. So. But that's clearly changed. So how do you get from like just messing about with a film camera in the woods and de- developing once a year and just picking the ones you like to becoming effectively, a, I guess, a professional photographer um, with a with a style and a, and a, a career off the back of it? Like what? What did what steps did you go through to get to to where we are? So when we were when we had all these film films developed, film roles developed, we'd have we actually had a website at the time that basically a guy that we knew had the domain called downhilling.co.uk. Right. So we had a website on there which we just we just put all these photos on, not because we thought people were looking at the website, but it was just a cool. I guess it was a gallery for us to have. Uh, that was, yeah. it was just there, but we'd also, or I would also upload a lot of these pictures that I'd taken at least onto, I mean, at the time, um, there were two websites or three websites that were quite big in the UK scene and they were Southern Downhill, which are now, which is now Ride.io, I think, um, Descent World and Gravity Slaves. Yeah. So we just upload pictures onto there. Onto, it was a forum, um, and they had, a, I don't know, they must have had a photography section. Um, so that's kind of what we started to first do. And that's really where my photos first started getting noticed. Because 
because it, it was a community thing, I think, at the time. I mean, a forum now seems a bit of a, a bit of an old school thing, I think. <laughs> but at the time, it was just where you've, I don't know, f- sold and bought bike stuff and kind of got the word out like that kind of thing or even saw race reports and things yeah. like that so um it was a like an archaic version of instagram yeah well yeah it was pre-social media right yeah no instagram no facebook yeah like, there wasn't really any other way of sharing imagery no, absolutely that was it and that it, that's that's literally all it really was but in a much you know more stripped back form yeah. um and were these just photos of you and your mates still or were you going to some races and, and taking some stuff there as well <laughs> Pretty much, yeah, just mates. Yeah. So it was just that. And then maybe a couple of other bits here and there. Um, it kind of very organically started to change, I'd say. Um, so there were a couple of bits where I think I started getting a few bits of work featured in things like single track. In fact, single track might have been my first printed publication. Um, I did a thing with Akarig because Akarig, well, he's local, so yeah, he's yeah. just over the hill. So... Um, I just did a, a day shooting with him and they ran a gallery and in the mag. And I think that, that really, and maybe a couple of other things are the first real starting points where I was like, hmm, maybe I could go somewhere with this. Yeah. Um, and it just organically grew, I guess, because you just, the more you do, the more your work gets seen, the more people you talk to, the more people you start photographing and it, it did very naturally just grow to a point where I, I would, could kind of make it a, a sustainable living, I guess. Yeah. So, um, so yeah. All through, all through the website stuff, right. You were getting people contacting with like inquiries for paid work off the back of that, or was there a few kind of leaps? Oh no, definitely. Yeah, definitely a leap. Um, so there were a little bit, so it was definitely more editorial work at that right. point, but it was kind of, done a little bit of both some of it off my own back and then some of it people would get in touch can you go and do this um but really the first leap i would say into that that world of working for myself was well i did i went to art college after i'd left school um dropped out of art college did a year working in the bike shop that had been a saturday t-boy for many years before and um and then one of the reps worked for Zyro, the distributor, and I just got chatting to him and we exchanged details and he put me into, in touch with the marketing people at Zyro. And anyway, my first commercial work was for actually for Altura, okay. the cycling clothing brand. Yeah. Um, and that was really the first job where I, could, that I thought I could just make it work and just dive in at the deep end and see what happens really because just felt like the right thing to do. You can always go backwards. You know, you can, I could always, I left on good terms with the bike shop and they're good mates. So if it didn't work, I, I could always go back into that world, but yeah. it felt like a good move to do it. And then from there, I just lucky with opportunities, I think, and, and people who supported what you were doing and gave you the opportunity to do some, some work for them. Um, so, yeah. What do you, what do you think it is about, kind of you or your work that's been key though in, in people keeping on coming through the door because there's so many young people taking photos there's some very talented people but not everyone I guess makes it or can turn it into making a living are there certain things that you've 
done or ways that you've worked or, or things that you think have helped? Like? Um, I think the time that it all started, well, the time that I started to make it happen for me, I guess, I think was a lucky time because it was pre Instagram face. Well, Facebook might've been a thing, yeah. but really it was pre social media in the way that it's used now. Yeah. Facebook wasn't being used for marketing at that point. was No. It? Um, so there was a lot less, um, there was a lot less content for people to sift through and there was a lot less competition to, to be up against whether, you know, whether you call it competition or not, I don't know, but it, for lack of better words. But um, I think I was lucky in that sense because it really was, your work, your work was maybe easier to be seen. Print publications were there, you know, they were the thing that, that people were, were seeing more of. Yeah. So it just worked out quite nicely. And then obviously it was quite easy to be able to have a conversation with a person rather than, through DMs or whatever at the time. So I think I was lucky because it, there were just maybe less people doing it mm -hmm. um, and less people using had the, the resources to be able to put their work out. And I think as well, mountain biking is obviously a small world and it was a smaller world then. So actually, if you are sh showing what you're doing at the time, you're really not, the audience was still quite small. Okay. I think so. It was just lucky timing really. Yeah. In terms of how I first started getting into it. But since then, I think I've always just had, I've not been conscious of how I shoot in terms of like, I must shoot like this because this is my style. You just, you, I, I always just shoot what I think is a nice picture. <laughs> so, um, I don't know. I always kind of think, well, if it's nice to hang on your wall, then to me, it's a nice picture. Yeah. Um, and maybe that, people just, people were just liking the style of photography that I wanted to shoot. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a lot of it, isn't it? People, people like people's work, don't they? So I think, um, yeah, maybe my style of taking pictures worked in my favor. Okay. Um, but that's just come, that's not been a conscious thing. That's just how you see things. Like yeah, your I think eye. So. yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, definitely. Well, it is. Isn't it? I think it is, isn't it? It's something that you definitely make conscious deci decisions when you're actually taking a picture, but it is all led by just what, really what I think makes a nice picture. Yeah. So. Fair enough. What about like skill and technique? How did you approach improving in that? Because you, you've obviously gone a long way from like point and shoot with a film yeah. camera to everything that you're doing these days. Like, have you... Is it something you've kind of studied? Is it just practice? Like how have you progressed your skill and technique? Um, for me, I think it's just been a really quite a natural linear sort of way or progressive, I guess, but a way of um, developing over the years because every time you do a job or you're taking a new set of photos or even a photo, you always, when you go back to review it, you always, you, there's always like, ah, oh, what if I'd shot it from there? You know, like <laughs> what if I'd actually just turned the other way? Maybe that would have made a better shot. So you're always kind of, I'm always analyzing what I've done. Okay. Um, bit of a perfectionist, I guess. So I think that comes into it. Yeah. But, um, you just, 
you just do, I think. I think that's like natural, a human trait, isn't it? Just to be self-critical maybe. Mm -hmm. So because of that, I think you always progress a little bit, but also there's all, there's so much inspiration as well. You know, obviously you, you flicking through a, at the time, like an issue of dirt and that would be something like getting a dirt front cover was a huge goal of mine. So goals definitely help drive you to change how you shoot or um, how well you shoot or what you want to shoot. So I guess a bit of goal setting definitely helps as well. Yeah. Did you get that dirt front cover? Got two actually. Did you? Yeah. What what two uh, images? So I had, the first one I got was a shot of Nico Vink in, we're in Malmody. I was on a hope. We're doing a thing for hope actually with him. Yeah. Um, and it was a random, it wasn't really a trail or a downhill track or anything. It was just a random hip in the bit of kind of wasteland, really random spot. But yeah, there was just this cool gravel heap with a big hip on it. And, uh, so that was, yeah, just Nico in a blue sky, basically quite a simple shot, but yeah, it made a, made a dirt cover, which was, yeah, I was, yeah, well stoked on nice. that. Was that your first dirt First cover? one, yeah. yeah. What was the second one? Second one was um, a shot of Brendan and at Whipoffs in Leger. Okay. No, the Desalp. Yeah. And um, yeah, so yeah, it was at Whipoffs and it was a pan shot and it was for issue 150. And that, that shot, I think, I wasn't there to shoot for anyone or anything, but me we'd been well we'd been stood on the same part of the course looking at the same angle of the jump for the whole entirety of whip-offs we weren't there shooting but we had a camera and i just had a beer in one hand camera in the other and i was just shooting vertical pan shots the whole time and i must have had a thousand shots and there was only two that were like good (laughs) and one was one one was of um dave mcmillan and one was on of um Brendan and uh when I saw that one I just thought yeah I've got to send that to Mike Rose and I did later that night and uh he yeah I think he said something like yeah don't send that anywhere else um watch your space or something and then there it was on the cover and I was pretty made up to have that one so that's cool. yeah what makes a good cover shot then is there, are there certain elements to or attributes to a photo that kind of make it work well for a cover I think it depends on the magazine uh-huh. um or, or just whether it's a magazine or not, kind of what that brand of publication is. Yeah, okay. Um, the feel of The feel yeah. of it, yeah. Like you, it's a single track, for example, they do wraparound covers. So yeah. You, you shoot with that in mind. Um, Bike Mag have pretty iconic covers over the years. I mean, that's yeah. definitely, obviously Bike Mag's not a thing anymore, but Beta, yeah. uh, the, the new version of with the same crew. Mm-hmm. Um their covers are definitely have their own style. Um, so it really depends on the publication, I think, but dirt definitely had again, their own kind of pretty aggro raw look, but also obviously there was an art an artistic side to it as well. And Mm -hmm. obviously always the design really made part of those covers as well. Yeah. They were just, they just had just a good feel about them. So yeah, I think it just depends on what the magazine is and, um, who who is going out to? But I guess at the end of it, if it's a good shot, you just know when it's maybe worthy of a cover. I think. 
<laughs> well, you um, clearly had the feeling for it, right? Yeah. You need to send it to Mike, so. I think you just get a shot sometimes and you're like, I just, that will just work on a cover. And then you, then you sort of start pairing back that thought and then figure out who it might work for. Yeah. So, um, does it need plenty of clean space? Cause a lot of covers will have quite a lot of text overlay about the different articles and stuff. Like and you need something that's not too fussy as an image. Does that make yeah, sense? Again, it depends. I mean, for yeah. someone like MBUK, I think, yeah, they'd something not too fussy cause yeah. they have quite a, quite a similar kind of look for yeah, every yeah. issue, but something like say cranked. Yeah. They just run with an image where the image is the sort of the main thing with the logo above it. So mm-hmm. you can kind of do what you want, really. And if Seb is into it, I think he he knows as well. I mean, he's a photographer as well as being yeah. an edit- editor. So um, you just get, a, yeah, you just get a feeling whether it looked good on the cover. or you, And also you want to see it on a cover. There's something about it, I think. It's really nice, obviously, to get stuff inside the magazine. But when it's a cover, it's just quite a... It's a good achievement, I guess. Yeah, it must be nice to walk into a news agent's and see your image on the front of a Mac. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's weird though, and uh, I think I've had, I think I might have had three covers where I've shot them as selfies. <laughs> so it's a bit odd. <laughs> Seeing yourself on the front. Yeah, 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 which is a bit strange. Yeah, but. well, that's a skill in itself, self-shooting, right? Um, definitely harder than shooting mates yeah. <laughs> or, you know, or riders, yeah. but um, Do you do it with a timer? Do you do it with a button on the bar, like? Yeah, so a button on the bar. I just have a set of really cheap eBay triggers. Nothing posh, okay. just crap. Yeah. Um, yeah, they don't look very pro. And I, I tape, well, actually, I used to tape it onto the bar. But the problem with that is um, you'd quite often, you'd have to ride a bit weird sometimes to trigger it at the right time. Okay. So what I tend to do now is just put my camera in bulb mode. Yeah. And then trigger it just as I'm setting off. So then I'll have... It's such an archaic way of doing it, but I'll have like 50 shots from a okay. burst of, you know, the line. Yeah. And then I've just got to go through and just pick the one where I'm actually doing the bit of trail that I wanted to get the shot on. But I only really do, I don't do them out of a habit. I kind of do it round here. So the trails here, I find they look really, really magic on like the right kind of day. Yeah. Because it's moorland, it can look really bleak in the winter kind of badly bleak and in the summer it can just like look like a sea of green and it looks really really beautiful for that but mm-hmm. when the mist rolls in or um the sun's doing the right thing i mean that's like any kind of photography i think there's always those moments where it just it makes a certain area just look a million times better or whatever so that's really when i'll just go out with the triggers and ride around and generally when there's mist yeah basically so will you be sat at home and then look out the window and like see that and be right i'm out of yeah. it i need to go shoot yeah it's funny you can open the curtains and if it just looks close and crap in the valley then i mean it's not a big valley here but if you just know it's if you can see mist down outside your window yeah then you know it'll either be a really good inversion or it'll look really good up kind of further up onto the moors yeah so um yeah get quite excited then and you don't lose the hunger for that, right? You've lived here a long time or you've lived locally for a long time and, and I'm sure shot on the moor a lot, but you'll still head up when the weather's right. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. But do you know, I haven't shot the moor that obviously, yeah, when we were doing the film days and just shooting for fun all the time, yeah. then yeah, I would shoot all the time, but I haven't shot on the moor that much because okay. 
I think now, obviously when you're working and you're doing, you spend so much of your, your work life elsewhere taking pictures. When I come back home and I ride, I just want to ride with my mates and not have a camera bag on and just enjoy a ride rather than, yeah. sometimes it's just nice to enjoy, even when it's an amazing sunset and you do get FOMO and you're like, ah, oh, wish I had my camera. <laughs> but actually it's just nice to enjoy it, isn't it? And just experience a ride in the sun without yeah. a camera bag on or anything like that. So yeah, when work and your hobby are basically the same thing, yeah. it can be hard to separate, right? Yeah, it can be. Um, but I'm pretty, I make quite a conscious decision in my mind to to separate things a bit. Whether it's a work ride or a, yeah. or a fun ride. Yeah, because it is different. I mean, I always think, well, ride, riding with a bag on, I do a lot. So it's nice not to have a bag on when the opportunity's there. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then also, you know, I don't want to turn a mate's ride into a photo shoot either because that thing will happen where you're like, can you just do it one more time, please? <laughs> oh, just go over there. Just do this. Just do that. And then you've kind of it ends up being an expensive round at the pub afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> Fair play. And you've, as well as, um, as dirt front covers, you've had a few other kind of high profile successes, I guess, which have helped boost your name and, and, and get you out and about and, and even more well-known. One of those would be, um, deep summer uh, where you won the judges award I yeah think. was it 2015 yeah it was, yeah it's well yeah seems like well it's a long time ago I guess. but um yeah so deeps we as a team we won the judges award for deep summer yeah and yeah it was 2015 which was a, again a really good achievement i think maybe now deep summer has changed a little bit in terms of what it is um but at the time it definitely felt like a big achievement and a really good thing to be a part of. Um, really exciting being involved in that. And we had a really good team and, um, and it was fun that year as well because they had quite a lot of constraints. So previously you could do what you wanted, I think within right. reason, you know, you could shoot as far as Squamish and Pemberton, I think, uh-huh. but they, they basically set a boundary around the, the actual bike park. Okay. So you could shoot Valley trails yeah. and bike park up to a certain point. Um, and you had to shoot three, you had to get three shots specifically. So you had to do something with the GLC drop, something with the, on the top of the world trail mm-hmm. that had the tusk in the background and something with, um, yeah, the hip, the tree island hip. Yeah. So having a bit of a brief as well was quite cool because you know you had to shoot things like that. So yeah. it was a pretty hectic few days of shooting from, I mean, sunrise to sunset, trying to edit as soon as we got in. So you were ahead of the game because you had to turn around your slideshow by the morning of your fourth day. All right. Fair play. Yeah. No so messing. it was pretty intense yeah. and pretty wrecked after it, but it was a really good experience. And how many images do you submit? Like, I think that was up to you. Yeah. You just right. had to do a slideshow. Um, you could do whatever you wanted in the slideshow, but it couldn't be moving image. Okay. So, um, we just found a nice tune and then I think it was, I don't know, three minutes worth of images. At, I don't know how long I put them on for, but yeah, the, the the concept we went for was just the whole, what you do is mates going to, well, yeah, a bunch of mates going to Whistler yeah, and we just kind of had fun with it. Um, but it was a really good experience and kind of a good thing to look back on. Good time. Yeah. Do you feel that had an impact on your career? Like, did you... Did, did more people come your way? Did, did it drive some recognition? 
I think definitely, yeah, definitely to a degree. Um, yeah, but I mean, undoubtedly it must have done something. But also I think for yourself as well, it was just, again, you just learn, don't you? You learn what you can get done in a few days and you learn um, how you can work without much sleep. <laughs> so, um, so a bit of a confidence boost as well, I think. Yeah, nice. Um, especially at the time, I mean, it was with being able to shoot alongside. I'd actually already shot quite a bit alongside Gary Perkin, but Gary was a big kind of, um, well, still is. He's a good mate, but also he's he, he was someone I looked up to. Yeah. And uh, to shoot alongside him and Grant Robinson and like Lawrence Crossman ends and stuff, it was it was cool actually. Some big names. Yeah, it was. It was well, it was just ace. Yeah, it was good to be involved with. So. Nice. And how how does the video side of things start to creep in? Because that's become a, a bigger and bigger part of what you do. Yeah. When did you start getting involved with that, and how did that how, how did that happen? So, not long after I first kind of went freelance, I think all I all I really wanted to focus on was photography because that's all I knew. Yeah. I, I mean, we had actually as kids made videos. We did our first ever film, bike film that I made. Uh, it was called White Cider because we found a bottle of white cider in the woods next to the trail. Nice. <laughs> yeah, original. Yeah. <laughs> um, so and so we did make films, but I wasn't that that bothered by it for whatever reason. I don't know why. But um, I just thought oh, I'll just become a photographer and keep pursuing that. But not that long after I kind of went freelance, um, the whole SLR and video movement was kicking off and mm-hmm. um, you know digital cameras suddenly started embedding video in them and the capabilities were pretty impressive and this whole movement of really cool indie films shot on slrs was just booming yeah and that started when i'd just really gone freelance so okay. off the back of that clients would start asking oh can you also do a bit of video and obviously I hadn't done video apart from white cider, which I definitely wouldn't show them as a, as an example of work. But, um, but yeah, I think that you just kind of say, oh, well, yeah, I can give it a go. And I did give it a go and had just really enjoyed the process and yeah. got into it again, quite naturally and having your hand forced a little bit and taking work on cause you wanted to. So um, but it was a good time because the whole, I think the whole SLR indie film thing was to know it was quite an exciting time. There's yeah. a lot of, I still look back at some of the films that not bike films, but some of the films that were coming out at the time. And I still think they're probably one of my favorite, some of my favorite films to, to watch actually. Yeah. Opened, opened a lot of doors, didn't it? The barrier to entry for video just suddenly dropped. Yeah. And it was easier to distribute as well. Right? Yeah, YouTube it was. And Vimeo and places yeah. like that. Completely. Yeah. That's it. It was a much more affordable thing mm. to get into kit. I mean, cameras still aren't cheap, are they? But you didn't need an expensive bit of kit to do it. Um, and I think these films that were coming out in all realms of indie film world, uh, I mean, I mainly watch sports stuff, be it surfing or bikes or whatever, but it just proved that you didn't need a huge production crew around you and things like that. You could just get creative and I think, yeah. Some really good stuff came out of it. Nice. So you've got this growing, uh, I guess, uh, brand, 
the mm. Sam Needham brand. Like your your name's yeah. getting more and more valuable within the industry. More and more people know about what you're doing. You've got clients coming to you for video and photo. All sounds really, really good. You've fairly recently made the decision to join Still City Media, yeah. which is um, initially set up by Joe Bowman. I, I guess yeah. people know it for like This Is PE and yeah. Syndicate Films and that side of stuff. Done a lot of work with with the Santa Cruz lot. What drove you to to make that move? Because it's quite a big change from from doing your own thing fully freelance to to teaming up with Joe. Yeah, um, I mean, I think I guess our timelines are quite similar, really, in terms of when we first got into it and how we first kind of got into it and how things have progressed. Um, and then I started working with Joe. Quite, well, I actually first met Joe at Trans Provence, maybe twenty. 14 uh-huh. something like that so it was the first time i met joe and he was racing actually so uh i'm not sure he's ever got over the frustration of having a flat on envies on one of those race stages <laughs> since but um but yeah we just i just joe just started getting me along on some of his um we did a couple of juliana things actually yeah. uh in oh, it must have been 2019 2018 uh-huh. around that that sort of time um and yeah, we just, I don't know, clicked like similar mindsets and, um, very similar like work ethic and just get along and have, I guess, same sort of values and just really enjoyed working with each other. Yeah. And anyway, uh, out of the blue, Joe just sent me an email one day saying, make a brew and have a sit down and read this. And it was basically just an offer to kind of team up and, um, I was, yeah, super excited for it. And it, it took a bit of thought because, you know, you spent eight, well, it must have been eight years at the time, yeah, building up and working on my own thing. And it wasn't a part, it wasn't like a thing of letting go. It was just like, oh, well, I've, it just felt, it's just a big step, a big change. Yeah, massive. Um, so I just, I just thought on it, but I knew I wanted to do it. And I just thought about all the, the sort of boring, the boring kind of, um, stuff that comes with changing things i guess yeah. but uh it honestly the best move yeah i don't look back at all how long has it been now like a year and a bit yeah a year and a half yeah, yeah. so it's officially joined start of 2020 okay so our year was just in time for just COVID. in time yeah <laughs> so we've we've actually been on a pretty steep learning curve this last couple well yeah year and a half yeah. um in terms of just how we work i think for both of us work has changed quite a lot Mm-hmm. in a really positive positive way and right we've had our hands forced a lot with how we work because of covid and that's we've just it's a covid has accelerated where i guess we want it to be i think mm-hmm. so it's been a really to take a positive out of a negative i think it's been a, an interesting time but kind of has made us learn quite quick as well yeah yeah but work-wise it's just it's just ace being able to work with other people day in day out on projects and collaborate for all sorts of different reasons, you know, on the hill when you're shooting, but also when you just get on that idea thought and start running wild with ideas, that's such an enjoyable part of the process and you haven't even got a camera in your hand. So nice. Yeah. Yeah, You guys are definitely uh, amongst the more creative kind of mountain bike video content that I've seen recently i guess one that stands out is the the blur launch for santa cruz yeah the ali maxim <laughs> yeah where, where does that come from like it's pretty uh pretty left field concept so that was a hard one to pull together because of covid 
because it was meant originally meant to be shot in France. Right. The whole concept to begin with was about the whole Maxime's journey from being a, a kid who was told that XE is not cool to becoming, you know, a pro and doing well as well. Yeah. And, um, and obviously also aside from that, Santa Cruz's ignore Santa Cruz's stance on basically ignoring XE for so long. Right. It was a bit of a, a stab, you yeah. know, at themselves really, uh-huh. which is cool. Um, but, you just start, I think it's like any idea really. You kind of have a, a concept and then you just start developing that concept into a storyboard Yeah, yeah. and how that would work out as a film. And so then once you've got a rough storyboard, you start kind of putting the details in and then that's when things get a bit, half the time you just come up with a weird idea and then you think it's a good one. <laughs> so. well, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of mountain bike stuff that's all, I guess, quite similar, like qu- high quality, yeah. but quite similar. But this feels like, I mean, there's definitely a Wes Anderson kind yeah, of influence I mean, that was huge. in there. Yeah. Like, that what? was that. I mean, that was a, a massive part of it as well. Yeah. To, to take a lot of influence and inspiration from Wes Anderson. Because we're all big fans of what he does. So. Yeah. What gives you the, well, the idea and then the confidence to do that? Because it's, it's very, like I say, it stands out. It's different, which is cool. Yeah. It's, it's hard to be different, right? Yeah. It's ha- definitely hard to be different. Um, I think... You just, the confidence and really comes from, it's really good having a brand. I think that we're lucky with a lot of the brands that we work for, that they, they let us, they just let us run with what we want to do a bit as well. Uh-huh. Obviously there's still, you know, there's definitely levels of like, there's a lot of back and forth, but it's really nice having a bit of a blank canvas to start with. Um, and then you just work together and people just trust, I think. And then, the devil is in the in the details as well. There's a lot of planning that goes into these things. You know, these days we don't tend to just rock up and shoot anymore. There's a lot of back end that happens just to make sure that you're shooting how you want to to get the best product out of it that you can. Uh-huh. Yeah. So yeah, for for Ali Maxime, there was it was a big team effort to make sure that things like locations were sorted out and the whole where's Anderson feel with set was sorted out and there was a lot of details that we had to sort of pour over just to get it all lined up yeah. that in covid were tricky yeah but so obviously even, like i say we we're going to shoot in france but we're shooting port Merion in the end so this was this is a very strange village in north wales yeah right? yeah <laughs> not what you'd expect no definitely not an, an actual mad place um and we were really lucky because you know like anywhere you've got to pay for the privilege to to shoot in places like this but yeah. because of covid and wales they were kind of semi-open so they you could stay in Port Merion for self-catering but you couldn't go and just visit right which meant that when we were there just by chance we had a empty Port Merion bar six people six other people staying there unbelievable so we had it was felt like we had the whole place yeah, it's set. a tourist attraction normally right yeah it's tourist people every day yeah. yeah yeah and from as soon as they open till as soon as they close yeah. so looking back on it I mean that it was a stroke, stroke of luck, but it made the process of that first scene so much easier to shoot, mm. which we just wouldn't have been able to do in normal times. Yeah. But then the rest of it, yeah, you just, it's, it's kind of ringing around and, you know, people who know people who've got stables that would be suitable and <laughs> things like that, or people who know like the cafe in town, they've got a Citroen H van. And it was just like a lot of things like that, that there's always someone who knows someone who can maybe help out on a thing like that. So. Nice. But yeah, a lot of planning and a massive team effort. Yeah. So a lot of fun to work on that. A hell of a lot of fun. Yeah. yeah. It's really good. Yeah. yeah. Do you think we'll see more 
creativity uh, it sounds harsh i'm not saying that mountain bike filming isn't creative but more variety i guess in mountain bike film content as brands are trying to differentiate and stand out because there's so much video well there's so much content but so yeah. much video content being generated every day now and there's only so much time in the day to sit and watch things yeah do you think brands are going to get more and more creative more and more variety to to try and stand out and to attract the eyeballs of people yeah i think so um like you say video now is just a massive part of the content that everyone consumes um i remember see, there was a thing uh, this is four years five years ago someone said that google had predicted by you know two years later down the line that 90 percent of the stuff that these people see online would be video uh-huh. which i think i mean now it's kind of true isn't it you scroll through instagram and so much of it's video now yeah um so yeah i do think brands are probably keen to definitely keen to stand out obviously that's always been a thing hasn't it but now there's definitely I wouldn't, it's not like there was never creativity there. There's always been a lot of really cool concepts and creativity going on, but I yeah. think there's, there's more pressure to, to be creative. I think, mm-hmm. um, you know, just doing, just doing a shred it almost isn't, that's a supporting thing now. Yeah. Okay. Um, whether that's, I don't know if the, whether that's because the cycling world's just grown and grown and growing, which is really good. Yeah. But if you look at any other, advertising in other markets be it cars or whatever there's always been a lot of really creative stuff going on and i think sure. that's just naturally where cycling's going i think yeah. or is it, it is kind of already people are doing pretty wacky stuff which is cool to see so yeah, definitely what do you think about that level of noise because like as we talked about earlier the barrier to entry for video dropped but it's dropped like tenfold at least since then right with you know gopro mobile phones the editing software has got really uh, you know free on a lot of computers quite easy to use at a basic level yeah yeah yeah. Yeah. so anyone really with a phone or a gopro can stick together a video they can upload it onto youtube and in some instances they can get quite significant numbers and there's a lot of like riders that are vlogging and you know, people, you know, outside away from racing that are vlogging and I guess doing pretty well out of it. It's hard to know. How do you guys feel as like professional videographers that are yeah. putting time and effort into the product? You spend thousands, no doubt, on equipment. You're constantly improving what you do. And then someone can, I don't know, spend 20 minutes chatting 15 minutes editing and five minutes uploading and, and get a similar amount of eyeballs maybe. Like, yeah, how, yeah. Yeah. How does that sit? Cause it, I, I could see it being a bit painful, but yeah, it's, it's not like a worry. It's not a worry in terms of how it sits. It's not like, Oh no, we're going to be, I don't think it's, um, it's a very different thing. You know, it might be the same. I mean, the end result is still a video. So in that sense, it's the same, but yeah. the, um, but who it caters for and what it is, is quite a different product. I think the sad thing is that things like Instagram and vlogging and stuff seem to be, I could be, I could be wrong here. This is just kind of what I think Uh from the outside looking in, I guess, but it seems that Instagram and stuff just, it seems like an easy way in. Yeah. But not a good way in sometimes, you know, like anyone can be, 
a professional, uh, an athlete, anyone can be a photographer or whatever, but the quality isn't there. Hey, like yeah. on just I'm trying to think of an example, but it's kind of a quick fix as opposed to pouring over honing in a skill and making something that you're truly proud of mm-hmm. back in that SLR, like boom, you made a film that was, you wanted it to be a, f- a riding film or whatever. And now there's a, it's like people just stack phone clips. Yeah. Which I think's, you know, it's, it, it gets likes and it gets, it generates engagement or whatever, but is it there to stay? I don't know. Is it something that impacts people or lasts in people's memory? Do people think back about a phone clip they saw? Um, I don't know. Yeah. Whereas there just seems to be less, certainly on the video front, there just seems to be less people just doing a cool creative thing straight from the word go. It seems like just the, there's a pressure on just getting into vlogging or doing slightly different things that cater for Instagram and stuff. Yeah. It seems to be favoring quantity over quality, I would say. Yeah. And I don't think that's helped by algorithms and the way that Instagram and YouTube and stuff like that make you feel like you have to work to make it financially work for you yeah yeah posting Um, a new video every day yeah all this kind of stuff and i'm not knocking it i mean it's a part of the world we live in now and i think a lot of people enjoy consuming it and i don't personally consume vlog stuff at all it's not like i don't haven't watched any of them i think Mm. some of them are actually really good if it's the right thing you know um but just general these the general day-to-day vlogs i just i don't know they don't really do much for me but i think it's um whether or not it'll change or whether it'll surely there's a, there's only so many quick cut. I've got to do a video today. Kind of videos you can do for YouTube. Maybe, maybe there isn't. <laughs> maybe, maybe it's endless. Yeah. yeah. Do you think, cause it like, I feel saturated already. Like there's so yeah. much content, even, even stuff that I actually really want to watch. Yeah. That I can't keep up. Like I can't even watch the stuff that I yeah. want to watch, let alone all the other bits of peripheral stuff that I yeah. would maybe watch if I had time. But it's getting watched. Like it doesn't, it don't seem, I feel saturated, but we don't seem to have reached a saturation point yet. Yeah. Do you think that'll happen? Do you think we'll we'll see less content? Like Maybe, maybe there'll be less of the, I don't know, maybe there'll be less of the, the influencer vibe. Uh-huh. Because I think that's a funny thing in its own right. But I guess now YouTube is, it, it's TV really, isn't it? For a lot of people. Yeah. It's, you can watch what you want. There's always something, but yeah, I agree. It's hard to to keep up on top of the amount of content because a lot of, it's not just bikes, is it? There's everything. If you're into a few different things and you're following content from all of those different hobbies or interests, yeah. then I don't know how you keep up, but um, yeah, maybe I, I don't know if it'll reach a peak. I just don't know if it'll start change, changing a little bit. The landscape will change a little bit. Um, less unboxing videos, <laughs> things like that. <laughs> yeah, fair But then play. I've learned a lot of DIY on YouTube, so yeah, it has its perks. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so would you rather someone watched a piece of work that you spent a lot of time on or went out for a ride? 
Ooh. <laughs> because it feels like if people are consuming this much content, surely it's eating into their time where they could be out on a bike. Yeah. I think it's good though. You've done your job. If you're, if what you've created has inspired someone to go for a ride and yeah. that's a really, I think that's a job done good. Yeah. Um, and likewise, I mean, I it's plenty of stuff that I watch and I'm like, I want to go and ride now. Yeah. Um, cause that's what it should do as well. Isn't it? I feel like there's less and less of that though, as a percentage of the content out there. Yeah. Like back in the day, I'm going to sound old now, but like almost everything I watched got me excited to yeah. go and ride a bike. Whereas because now that, less. Yeah, maybe. maybe. That feeling is rare, is more rare now, I would say. I there's think, a lot of content that just doesn't really do anything. Maybe yeah. it educates a bit, but. But I think, I mean, thinking back to when I would, would ride, do the same thing to get before a ride, you know, you'd watch something. It would literally be a case of banging in a DVD and yeah. it'd be. Sprung or Sprung Earth. Or, Earth yeah. or Collective or Rome or whatever. Yeah. And you'd get, that'd be, it'd be a an appointment to watch to get your, to get hyped up for a ride. Yeah. There's that much stuff then out there now that it isn't a case of necessarily choosing between a few things that's in, that's in front of you in a collection of DVDs. Yeah. I wouldn't, you know, what do you, do you, do you think oh, I'm just going to watch a, se- a section from this film or do you just, I don't know. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I guess what you watch is it's less, it's less curated than it used to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Because it's so much. You can't, you haven't just got this little collection of things that get you excited. You, yeah. You And you watch stuff. You don't watch as many things more than once. No, like that's true, then, actually. You, there was so little that you'd watch Sprung until the VHS tape yeah, broke yeah, yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. But maybe that's it now. You can literally, if you want to get a bit of hype going on before a ride, you can literally go on Instagram, any of the websites and yeah. just find something that'll probably cater to what you yeah. what you want to see so mad how it's changing yeah definitely and hard to predict where it will go right but yeah. i guess you, you still feel like there'll be a place for quality video and photography yeah, absolutely yeah. yeah i think there always will be a place for that um i hope there will always be a place for that and i think people will always appreciate uh quality production as well mm-hmm. and films and story films and whatever it might be because you know people people want to be able to sit down and watch something that's a bit more long form and yeah uh excites them in a different way and maybe how we consume that will change so it's or maybe things like social media will change so it's less there's less pressure on just social media and people Mm. can curate these longer form pieces a bit easier i don't know it's hard yeah because it's changing so quick as well and as soon as you think you know it there's a new platform out yeah 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 yeah. so like tiktok i mean god knows not not on it personally i'm too old but that's (laughs) a thing that is you know it's a huge part of people's lives and yeah i guess with that marketing that way so yeah yeah be interesting if you had like a few different algorithms that you could choose on a platform. Yeah. Like maybe one that sh- actually showed you quality stuff that yeah, you wanted yeah. to see and, and was a bit less uh, just trying to suck you in and waste your time kind of thing. Yeah. Like, 
maybe but, different levels that you can engage with the platform at maybe i don't know and also i mean the, qu- the quality side of things is always no matter what it is it always takes a bit of digging doesn't it you mm. know you could be buying anything oh it could be something for your house but if you want something that's not off the shelf you know you, if you want some i'm trying to think of an example if you want some nice handmade mugs yeah yeah then you want to go and search them out it's a different process to just buying some mugs isn't it and it I think is that's a pretty weird no, <laughs> but it but... makes sense it's more rewarding when you get there as well when yeah. you find the right mug yeah like that you've worked hard to dig out yeah yeah yeah. that's more guys that an insight into my life yeah. that uh... maybe it's all about <laughs> mug hunting <laughs> i like tea and coffee but... <laughs> but yeah maybe i guess that there is that with video the harder it the more stuff there is out there yeah. the harder you have to work to find the real gold but yeah. the more valuable that is to you when you find it I well don't know. i think think people like or websites like vimeo for example i mean i'm a big fan of vimeo from a as a platform well platform i don't use it as a platform as a social thing or mm. anything but you can go on vimeo and you can go through what they've curated in different channels okay. be it sport documentaries um art music whatever and you can just, if you just wanted to go through what they've selected as what they deem as being relevant to be put in their playlists or whatever, okay, then there's so much good variety and different things on there that's so inspiring and um, just you can watch something about a totally different walk of life and that's really interesting, I think. And they're all short films. It's It's kind of... Just like those indie DSLR days, really, yeah. kind of still. So it's like YouTube, but with a filter for quality. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you won't see a vlog on Vimeo, or at least I don't think. It'd be a really good vlog. It'd be a hell of a good vlog. Yeah. No videos with of cats with sellotape on their back. No, <laughs> or it'd be a very artistic one if it was. <laughs> <laughs> I have to check it out. Yeah, cool. Well, let's let's talk about kind of the other side of what you get up to because you've spent a lot of time, for which. I'm personally very grateful kind of looking after Ilkley Moore from a mountain bike yeah. perspective with a group of mates, Ilkley MTB. Yeah. Um, I guess talk a little bit about what drove the need or the, de- or the drive to start that um, because that's kind of the first hurdle, I guess. Yeah. It, that literally the whole Ilkley MTB thing came off the back of a, just a local rider basically T-boned a runner on the junction really unfortunate event everyone was fine i mean the runner i think he got a broken collarbone so it wasn't that great okay but at the time when it happened it was all kosher but then you know like later that week in the local paper which is the worst thing in the world (laughs) um it just blew up with this you know like very one-sided biased story how this runner had been i was like this runner's done amazing things for the dolphin trust and now he can't do something because he's broken his collarbone right it's like one very one-sided and it just didn't need to be a headline thing but i guess that's small town fear isn't it (laughs) but um yeah from the off the back of that it it caused a lot of conflict and a lot of single-sided conversation and i think his mountain bike has well at least locally we've always tried to stray away from any conflict so you just kind of keep a low profile and yeah it just got to the point where all of a sudden other user groups who help manage them all were banging in fences across trails on pretty sketchy parts and no no chat or consideration for other you know who might be riding as well you know as yeah. kids there's all sorts of different ages and abilities who ride up there and have done for years mm-hmm. um um so 
off the back of that, really, we had to start a conversation and it started off quite hot with the basically here. And I'm sure it's the case in a lot of different um, areas, but there's a group, a friends of group who help they're a voluntary group and they do a lot of good stuff, not denying that, but they work kind of in cahoots with the council to uh-huh. council own the land. It's common land, but this user group, they help do a lot of the work okay. and voluntary stuff, but they were very anti-bike and they were going to ban it, but the council weren't. Right. So we had to start a conversation with a, with the council and them yeah, and set up something relatively official just to be a bit of a voice for the st- the people who've ridden here for years, you know, and uh-huh. and just make sure that things were not moving backwards. So um, that's what kicked it off. Uh, and was we were lucky that a couple of, in our riding group, one of, well, Matt, the guy who um, really started it, actually, he was in, he was a part of the friends group. He was just on the committee as a rider, okay. as a bit of like an insider. He was a, he was a mole. Yeah, nice. Um and also he knew someone at the council as well. So right. okay. it was a good... That helped. They did help a lot, yeah. yeah. What did you have to do to kind of set something up? Is there like an official structure that you have to have? Or is it just simple of getting a group of you and saying like, we want to talk about this? Yeah, literally as simple as that. Yeah. Um, and I think that that was important, that it didn't have to be too much or any red tape just to be able to get a conversation started. Yeah. It, it was literally... We're, we're a group of mates. We ride up here all the time. We've ridden up here for 20 years or so. We're also trying to represent people who've ridden up here longer than that. Yeah. But we're just passionate. And I think in past experience on the moors, we'd had a couple of trails. When we used to ride downhill, there was one trail that was shut down. Mm-hmm. It was never built. It was a natural trail, but the friends group, they fenced it off and they put, they let it, they put this uh, matting down to like the bracken regrow. Right. Which is a bit of an irony because they don't want the bracken there in the first place. <laughs> but also we just kind of shrugged it off at the time and just thought, oh, it's annoying, but whatever. But I think now, and I think, well, they've kind of made a rod for their own back there because we've kind of come back and set this, set Ilkley MTV up. And yeah. as a as a reason, I almost look back at that and think almost that probably subconsciously sparked something in all of us to to start making a bit of a difference and help trying to stand up for us as mountain bikers, I think. Yeah. How, so how have you gone about kind of managing that relationship over, how, how long has it been going now, the MTB? Probably three or four years, but okay. really low key. Yeah. It's not like, um, we didn't set up with a boom or anything. It was just, and and even now I don't think it's a, it's still pretty low key. I mean, we keep pretty quiet on social media and stuff we need to say something when we feel like we have to and yeah. i think that's kind of important you know it's not a it's not a tool to promote an area or it's not a tool to say hey look at how good this is or what we've put or pat ourselves on the back it's kind of an education tool to sort of okay. say right you know it's been pissing it down for two weeks if you can maybe go and ride somewhere else or yeah. you know things like that because that's what's important hey it's not about posting pretty pictures on that one yeah 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 so you're not you're not trying to create a bike park on the moor no you're not trying, at all yeah you're trying to just communicate and educate the people that are riding there to, yeah to make sure that we can continue to do so exactly right? and there are ways and and sustain help try and keep trails sustainable or maintain them in a better way and make sure that they're not all riding's progressed a lot bikes have changed a lot riders have traffic riding traffic's 
got a lot more, especially yeah. over this last two years with COVID. It's just gone mental. And mm. I think every everyone's local spot's been hammered a lot more. Yeah. Um, but just because of that, you know, if cycling's only going to grow, I think we have to have more knowledge about what sustainable trail riding is. Yeah. Um, and just know what's maybe a bit of etiquette, I think, and knowing kind of some areas are quite sensitive and mm-hmm. things like that. So it is an education tool. Yeah. I mean, that makes it sound really dull. It's not meant to be all <laughs> like dull. It is meant to be a positive thing that hopefully does do, has a good impact. So yeah. I think for a lot of riders, they've maybe just never needed to think about it. Yeah. Right. They just ride as a trail there. I'm going to ride it. Yeah. They don't think, well, actually if I'm kind of straight line in that corner or, yeah. You know, walking up and eroding a new line, and then, then people start riding down on, or yeah. riding when the conditions are really bad, and you know the ruts are just getting out of control. I think it's like here when we first started riding. Well, when we were kind of into it more, and we were on after we'd done the downhill thing, and we were kind of getting trail bikes were becoming a, a yeah. thing. You know, um, we you could in the winter ride a loam track. You could just ride whatever you wanted in. Yeah. And it would never get beyond low because there were, just weren't enough people riding. I mean, trails, that they were so fun because of it, but come the summer, they'd be gone again. Yeah. Because the bracken had all just kill them off again, uh-huh. which was an amazing thing. It was like this infinite life cycle of different bits. They were never long trails. Yeah. Um, they were just bits, which was, which was really good. But I think then Strava came along and that really started changing and the, with the bikes as well here, I'm just, I'm not speaking about biking as a whole here uh-huh. on our local scene. We, we just started kind of unearthing or discovering that actually these bikes allowed us to ride longer trails better, yeah. faster, more comfortably because you weren't on a downhill bike or you weren't on a, a far cross bike that was jacked up <laughs> to be a trail bike. Whatever. Yeah. So, um, with that, just everything started changing. And I think, um, trails definitely stood the test of time longer. They didn't get covered up in the winter, in the summer. Mm -hmm. And yeah, we just had to keep on. Well, now we just have to keep on top of things a lot more because the traffic's there and then trails, once they get ridden in, they don't tend to go now. So either you don't want it there, you kind of have to shut it off and yeah. Yeah, it's a tricky one to manage. What's the reaction been like from kind of the local riding community? Has, has everyone kind of towed the line or? Yeah, really positive. Okay. Even when it's a bit of a gripe, I think it's it's really, really the power of community and getting people together. It's funny because we've not had a lot of dig days where we've had loads of people together mm-hmm. just because we feel it's, it kind of promotes it as being a, an official trail center okay. and it's not you know it's these are natural trails it's yeah. not a trail center it's not a bike park they're just trails that come and ride them but just have a bit of awareness so we've we've been pretty careful with that but in terms of the chat we have on social media and stuff everyone's it's amazing how i think so many people so many people's minds are aligned on the same page yeah and they all everyone just wants Everyone completely appreciates what we're trying to do as a group, which is really positive. And yeah. people, no one's had any other reaction. I mean, we've had a couple of things where we've had to take, in this last year, we've had to take down 
a couple of random jumps that have just been built. And it's not for safety reasons or anything like that. It's just because, you know, a jump will be built somewhere random. Some locals will kick off about it because it's it wasn't there a week ago. Yeah. And you've it looks a mess. It's built badly. It's not a sustainable trail. And if it keeps getting ridden, I mean, generally what happens with things like that, that is it'll get ridden and then it'll get, you know, chopped up and people get bored of it. So they just go 10 meters to the side and do another one. Yeah. And then you end up with a load of really crap sections next to each other and it looks a mess, you know, it's not right. So we've had a couple of things where people have said, ah, yeah, but it's just a jump. And then you have to explain that, well, yeah, you know, this is kind of what happens if everyone builds just a jump. Yeah. Okay. Then it, it's not really good for anyone. And, you know, we all want to keep riding up here and we've got to toe the line and be doing, doing the right thing in conjunction with the council and stuff. Cause ultimately they're the people who are good enough to allow cycling. So definitely. And has that relationship with the friends of group and the council improved over time? Like once they've understood where you're coming from and, can see that you've got positive intentions or is it always a bit strained uh council's really good yeah we have a really good relationship with some of the guys at the council and it's we're completely aware of some of the issues and you know it's only a small group they're not always it takes time doesn't it it takes a lot of time and also there's a bit of red tape now because of we have got more official mm-hmm. so now we because of the council working with natural england we've got to if we want to change something quite drastic, we've got to do a proper um, proposal now. Okay. Which is a really good thing because I think it should be like that. So we're yeah. not just doing what we want. Um, you know, if it, there's a section of tra- one of the trails at the bottom, it's really bad. You know, it gets really wide. There's a million different lines down into one corner. Yeah. That needs a reroute. But now we just can't go and do whatever we want, which is, I think it's a really good thing. But yeah. it allows us to think about what we want to do that'll actually work for other people as well. Okay. You know, maybe if people want to walk up that trail, cause these are all multi-use trails, then yeah, how yeah. do you build it that people would walk what you, what's there as a line now as a piece of single track yeah. rather than chop, you know, skipping out a corner or something. Yeah. Picking so, their own way. Yeah. yeah. So that's really good. So the, the, the conversations there with the council are really positive. Um, but the, the other user groups, I think it's always a bit of a challenge. It's, I think we're working hard to change that, but I feel like we're being sort of closed. They don't want to hear from us. Right. We, you know, we've had a lot of um, emails ignored and things. And, you know, ultimately at the end of the day, we're all trying to work to the same goal. Everyone wants to look after the place that they love and have, have ridden or walked or, yeah, yeah. and we don't just ride it. We walk it and enjoy it in loads of other ways as well. And, you want to keep on, you want to keep it in good shape and do what you can as a group to put back what you get out of it. And they, they unfortunately, they don't always see that. I think they just see mountain biking as a destructive force mm. and it doesn't have to be. I mean, they, um, there's lots of different kind of things that they try and pull, pull on us. And a lot of it's, you know, misguided and it's conversations though, isn't it? I, I do believe that you keep having good chat and, you kind of stick a, it's a good group of you and you're all working to the same goal and yeah. you can change people's opinions. And yeah. I'm not saying we're as mountain bikers always in the right either. Yeah. Um, fair enough. But it will take a while as well. Like these things don't change overnight. The, no, the, the exactly. opinions are, are strong. And Yeah. And I think as well, like on the other side of it, 
a lot of the hassle I've personally been getting recently has been on where I live. I can commute off road to the office and it's yeah. been on bridleway. I've had people who walk us who having, you know, been got insanely angry at me for being on a bike, even though it's on a bridleway, which is fully permissive. And yeah, yeah. exactly. But it's just a, a very bizarre like old mindset thing because I'm making a decision to ride into work, which is better on many levels. Yeah. Yeah. And people, I think there's just this, if people don't like cycling, don't like bikes, they're quite happy just to stick to that mindset, even if yeah. you try and have a conversation with them. So, yeah. But if I do think, you know, in general, from a, from an environmental point of view, if things want to get better, with the world, then people have to allow a bit more access to, for people to be able to commute better or get to where they need to be better or use a bike as a tool from getting A to B because yeah. there's a lot of, even footpath, you know, there's so much footpath that shouldn't necessarily be a footpath. It should be, it should be open to be used as a, as a route. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I'm not talking about as a trail, that's an amazing trail to ride. I mean, just as a, as a vessel from A to B, Yeah, it's really important that things like that start changing, I think. Interesting. Because otherwise, you know, you ride on the road, people hate you on the road. You ride <laughs> off road, people hate you off road. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's not ideal. Is no, it? no, no. But the, the, the attitudes need to change. So. Yeah, definitely. Well, it's good that you guys are, are getting stuck in and doing that and, yeah, keeping access and, and looking after the moor and the trails and the interest of the mountain bikers. So, yeah, awesome work. If people that are listening are thinking, well, maybe we could do with something like that where we are locally, like any advice, any resources you'd give? I think, yeah, get together as a group of mates or a group, pull in more people as well. I think we've been a bit, um, a bit guilty of n- not getting more people involved, but it's not through a decision, but it's just hard to get a lot of people involved when you don't ride with them yeah, week yeah. in, week out as mates. Yeah. So, but just get, good group of people together. Ideally speak to people who aren't in your circle Mm -hmm. who ride maybe a bit different and then get in touch with the landowner really. Um, and other community groups who are in that, that area and Uh just have, honestly, have conversations and, and, and getting face to face quite a lot. Um, I remember we had a lot of discussion with, um, quite recently with Henry and the crew at Ride Sheffield. Yeah. Yeah. And they, they offered us a really good amount of advice. And I mean, they've been, you look at their stuff and they're in a really good place and they do a lot of amazing work and mm-hmm. they, it kind of comes down to conversation and um, just communication. And that is the key. I think don't, don't just think you're doing the right thing Yeah, all the time. Fair play. I think face to face is a really good thing to, to aim for, like you say, because it's very easy for people to be angry on email. Yeah. And you tone s- of voice you never get, do you? Yeah. And you and see it a lot on forums that people will tear into each other, but you put them in a room together yeah. and the conversation will be much more civilized. Yeah. And on that the whole. It is definitely key. Yeah. And then you can just, you just get much more done, don't you? So definitely. Yeah. Nice one. Good stuff. Well, we're getting close to the end of our time, but we've got our final four questions. First of those questions. <laughs> yeah. If our listeners had £150 to spend to improve their performance on a bike, what should they go and spend it on? Um, I would say, so improve the performance of their bike. On their bike. Um, If it's actually the bike, I would probably stick pretty safe and say good set of grips and a good Uh set of tyres. Okay. Which is probably quite a standard answer. It is. What what have you gone for? What's your choice? Um, 
I mean, personal preference, isn't it? Yeah. But yeah. for most of the year, I'd just run SE, Bontrager SE5s. Okay. Pretty solid tyre, reliable. Yeah. yeah. Predictable. Um, or the G5, which is just a downhill one. Mm-hmm. Um, and then grips, just death grips for me. Nice. But again, solid nice choice. and thin. Yeah. yeah. Good without gloves. I can't really ride with gloves. So. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, I can ride without gloves. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not physically constrained. But <laughs> <laughs> it is allowed. Yeah. But tend not to. So, yeah. um, so yeah, probably that I would say, or yeah. if you just getting into it, definitely a helmet. Mm-hmm. If speaking to my 11 year old self. Yeah. Good start. And then, uh, good set of pedals. Okay. You want flats yeah. or clips? Flats. Yeah. I did used to ride clips, but yeah. Gone. Well, started flats, went yeah. clips, gone back to flats. What's your current shoe pedal combo? Five ten. Yeah. Which ones? Uh, free rider pro. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but the impacts are good as well. But just prefer the uh, the look of the yeah. free rider ones, I guess. Uh-huh. But uh, and Bergtex. Okay. Quite like the plastic ones. Uh, interesting. So, uh, but yeah. Okay. That's what I run. Fair play. Nice. All right. Second one. If you could wind back the clock and sit down with yourself age 16, other than telling him to wear a helmet, what <laughs> advice would you give him? Um, don't don't sweat on the little things, I think. Uh-huh. Definitely been a, a bit of a, I've definitely worried about stuff, which has been stupid to worry about. But I think maybe we're all guilty of that. Yeah. Are you getting so, better at that, do you think? Yeah, definitely getting better. I think you just... They say, don't they, changes with age a bit. You care you less start, the older you, you get, less, I think. Yeah. So I think that is definitely happening. But Care about the important stuff, yeah, but yeah, you yeah. let some stuff go. Yeah, definitely. Um, but yeah, probably ju- I'd probably stick with that, actually. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Nice. Third question. If you could have a coaching session with anyone, past or present, what would it be and what would you want to learn? Bikes or non-bikes, or both? One of each, maybe. So if it was... Non-bikes, I would get a coaching session. There's a drummer called Nat Townsley, and he's, I think he's like more of like a jazz-influenced drummer. Okay. But amazing drummer. I'd probably sit down with him and try and figure out kind of how he drums so well. Okay. So is that another hobby? Uh, yeah. I mean, definitely. It's quite a big part of past life. Okay. So, uh, so yeah. And I still do have my drum kit. I just don't have the space to have it set up. Yeah. Or... I mean, the neighbours are actually quite old, so it might, might be quite a good time <laughs> to get might be deaf enough. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, but yeah, I mean, that was a big part of life, but definitely still kind of dabble in that, okay. that area a bit. So, yeah. Nice, that's cool. And a bike one, I would probably say, ooh, if I could, I mean, I've shot with Joe Barnes quite a bit and he's, a really good dude i'd probably just if i could come away after a session with joe being able to turn like joe can that be quite happy there yeah i've uh i mean some of the turn like joe can but on the trails that he manages <laughs> to get down like he does i mean it's it's always eye-opening every time i've shot with him i've been quite amazed about what those boys ride because it you know it's the amazing trail mm. but the way that they ride it to that level i mean it's so tech um but in a different way it's very there's there's i think joe barnes has got his own yeah style of trail it's kind of unique yeah yeah definitely we shot something actually for it was for one up year or two ago mm-hmm. 
and uh, I mean the majority of the trail was just a bog, <laughs> and um, yeah, it was absolutely it was pretty mind blowing just to see him and Lachlan yeah riding that because it was literally a bug. So <laughs> it's amazing, yeah. If yeah. anyone can ride a rut, like, yeah, 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 definitely, yeah. So clipped in, feet up, wow, like they're on rails, yeah, unbelievable, cool, nice one. Last one. What do you do every day that you feel benefits you? Um, it will be either listening to music, radio, or reading a book. Okay. I would say something that I definitely do every day. Yeah. So I'll either, I'll either read before I go to bed, just to try and let the mind switch off mm -hmm. or switch on to something else. Yeah. Um, or yeah, I always, if I'm at home, radio goes on as soon as I'm downstairs. It's like radio on then kettle. Yeah. Um, but it's kind of just music. I don't know. Okay. It's just a, again, it's been quite a big thing in the past. Well, it still is a big thing. I just enjoy all different types of music. So, yeah, fair play. And it can change your mood, can't it? And it can slow your heart rate down. It can yeah. speed it up. It can do all sorts. So Definitely. it's pretty powerful. So, yeah. yes. Yeah. And in reading it, fiction or nonfiction generally? Generally nonfiction. Okay. So, yeah. Yeah, generally non-fiction. Anything stand out from recent reads? Um, I read recently a book called Operation Mincemeat, mm -hmm. which was the story of a deception plan in World War II. Okay. Which is super interesting, actually. Definitely mm -hmm. worth a read. Yeah. So historical things like that I quite quite enjoy. Yeah. Um, yeah, kind of all sorts, really. Nice. Good stuff. Yeah, definitely good to turn the brain off or change gears at the end of the day. Yeah, I think it's busy. really important because you can spend, well, it depends on your mindset, doesn't it? But I think uh, it's far too easy to be hooked into your phone 24-7 Yeah, or your work life, especially at the moment. But I think having stuff that, yeah, just separates sep separates you from things and just takes your mind off stuff Yeah, is a, is a good thing to have. Cool. Nice one. Well, uh, we're at the end of our time, but if people want to find out a little bit more, like check out your work, where's the best place or places for them to look? Uh, usual spots, you know, despite the social media chat, definitely <laughs> on social media. But, um, and then also just online, um, personal websites, just samneedham.co.uk. Uh -huh. But, uh, and the Steel City website is soon coming. Ah, but, uh, okay. I found like a, a waiting page last yes. time I looked. Yeah. Yeah. It's on the list of jobs. But okay. Yeah. So is that going to have like links or access to all of the videos that you guys do? Yeah, or, it will yeah. do. I'll have, yeah, we're still kind of working out how we're going to put it all together, but yeah, it'll be a, it'll be a good selection of projects on there and stuff. Okay. But yeah. Cool. That'll be where to find us alongside, I guess, all the work that we do for different people. So yeah. Nice. Mm. I shall stick some links in the show notes to those websites and then cool. when, when the Steel City one's live, if people are listening a bit further down the line, yeah, yeah, yeah. they'll be able to click that. <laughs> we'll find time. Wicked. <laughs> nice one. Well, thanks um, Thanks for your time. Thanks for everything you do to keep the trails running sweet and to keep, keep the uh, access available to the moor because it, it is a lovely place. And yeah, looking forward to seeing more of your work with Steel City Media. It's, it's uh yeah, it's definitely cool to see you as a part of that and see that the work that you guys are churning out because it's, yeah, it's creative, it's quality and it's uh, it's nice to have as part of the mountain bike world. So yeah. thank you very much. Cheers, yeah. We'll keep, keep pushing. It's good fun. So as long as we can keep it fun, that's the key, eh? Nice one. Yeah, cool. good stuff. Cheers, Cheers Chris. Thanks.
All right, that's it for this episode with Sam. I really hope you've enjoyed listening. Big thanks to Nukeproof for supporting this episode. They've just launched their first e-bike, the Megawatt, and it seems to be going down really well, with super techie reviewer Seb Stott saying they've knocked it out of the park. They've got three models to check out and they're stocked with dealers now, so head over to nukeproof.com to see the bikes and find out more. Also, a big thank you to Earshots. If you're looking for a pair of headphones for riding or training, which are comfortable and stay put, then Earshots are the ones for you. As a downtime listener, you can get 10% off during July by using the code DOWNTIME, all in uppercase, at the checkout over at earshots.com. There's just one thing left for you to do, and that's to head over to downtimepodcast.com forward slash EP and leave us your name and email address to find out what we're up to and to get the chance to be one of the first people on the planet to get your hands on a very special EP1. All the links you need are in the show notes for this episode over on downtimepodcast.com. If you want to represent the show, then you can get your hands on our range of merch by heading over to downtimepodcast.com forward slash shop with all the proceeds going to help improve the show. If you're still listening and you've got a bit of time, then there's a few ways you can help out. Tell your rider mates about the podcast because the more people who listen, the easier it is for me to keep this thing going. Share the episodes on your social media. It's a really great way to spread the word and to get some buzz going around the episodes. And if you fancy it and you've got a couple of minutes, then a review on Apple Podcasts goes a long way too. All right, we've got another awesome episode coming up really soon. But until then, get out and ride. (laughs) 